1: and most importantly, the survivor understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery.
0: Dr. Teasel said that the reasons that therapists have for not doing these things, so they include not having enough time, being busy. And I understand all of this. I do because I've been in those shoes. All of those reasons. He said that they're legit. And I think that whatever our reasons are, whoever we are, I think they're legit to a degree. I think that we need to start empowering ourselves to take some steps and try new things. And I just think it's important to have a culture of listening and kindness, be compassionate with each other. And then that way you're going to advance your clinical outcomes, you'll advance your practice setting. But in trying to implement something new and doing new things, it's become very apparent to me, that we really are limited by our own weaknesses. Is that a back scratcher or a long handled shoehorn? It's a long handled
1: shoehorn from IKEA, but it's the best back scratcher ever. <laughs> It's got this little hook on the end and it's rubberized. You just nail it. It's Mm. part of the sock anyway. These are my problems. Are you ready to get started? I'm ready. Are you ready? I'm ready. Hey, Deb Battistella, how
0: you doing? Hey, Levine, I'm great. How are you? What's new? What's new with you and your world? What's new with me and my world? I finished up a week, which means I taught... Or Well, let me just start that over again. I taught two... Tai Chi exercise classes this week, got through that. And for some reason, I acted like I never taught anything before, felt like I never taught anything before. I was a nervous wreck. Wow. Yeah.
1: Now, are are these with the uh, OT students? No, this is with
0: people in the community.
1: So let's review folks. Deb rides motorcycles, drives a very fast car, teaches Tai Chi, and she also does swing dancing. So is there anything you do? So why? Okay. Where did you go to to teach Tai Chi?
0: I connected with uh, an amazing gym owner um, here and I teach it at her gym. It's called Vitality Buffalo.
1: (laughs) That's kind of a cool name. It is. because I I think of a very vital Buffalo. Just yeah.
0: (laughs) Well, if you've ever driven through Buffalo, you would see Buffalo statues in various places, like on the interstate, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, the only Buffalo I know is Jim Kelly. Well, he's worth knowing.
2: <laughs>
0: so that's that's just a
1: very bad reference to a quarterback who yeah. uh, used to play for the Buffalo Bills and was really quite good. And last oh, I heard, I he know. got cancer, but he also survived mm-hmm. cancer. So yeah. um, best of luck to... Um, to Mr. Kelly.
0: Yeah. What's new with you?
1: Uh well, Isla and I uh went to one of my son's soccer games yesterday and it was so hot we pretty much melted.
0: Oh. Uh summer and, came back.
1: Yeah, it did. And uh but uh my my son so there was good news, bad news. The the team lost and uh the good guys lost and mm. but he was on his team man of the match, which is a new thing and I hadn't heard of this but He's won it a couple times and they've only had three games. Unfortunately, both of the games that they lost, he became man of the match. What does that mean? It means you played better than anybody else on your team. Wow. I think that's what it means. So the coach, he's a Brit and he scores everybody and they, he gives them one through 10 score. And then whoever has the highest score. But yeah, my, my son is faster than anybody on the field typically. And so if somebody comes into the defensive zone where he is, he shows up with the ball before they do and yeah so I'm very proud of them. Anyway we almost melted and uh, we had to get back in the car and uh and unmelt. Uh, other cool. than that everything's going good. Good yeah, sounds absolutely. like a fun time.
0: yeah it was pretty fun. I used to enjoy watching my kids play. They never played at the collegiate level though.
1: Oh, okay. Um, one of the people I'm adjuncting with, I found out yesterday was on a full ride scholarship to uh, a half academic, half uh, soccer scholarship to college. And yeah. she's like this little petite DPT. And I'm like, what? Why didn't you? Okay. So it's surprising what skills people have. And you know, what's good for people with brain injury skills that they had prior to the brain injury because then they know how to practice. And if that young lady ever has a stroke, which I'm sure she won't, um, she's going to know how to come back because she will work her toches off. It's a Yiddish Mm -hmm. word. It means butt. She'll work her butt off. Yep, yep. So what are we talking about today?
0: Well, today you and I get to have our own conversation about the conversation we had with Dr. Teasel and Marcus. Share our thought about all of this and the excitement that we experienced. So
1: this will come out, this episode's going to come out after I launch the second episode with Dr. Teasel and Marcus and Sakley. Marcus Sakley. We should probably use his last name since we're using should
0: sorry, Marcus. Yeah. So um no, nah, I don't think he cares really. He probably wanted to listen. Yeah.
1: But um oh I I don't
0: know, Pete. I have a feeling he's going to. Oh,
1: okay. Mm -hmm. So.
0: Oh, you know what? I think this needs to be said before we get into this and maybe you'll rearrange it, but I assigned podcast episodes to my class. What?
1: Wait, our podcast? Uh Uh-huh. I did. Wow. You should. Yeah. Okay.
0: Okay. And I had a student come bounding into the classroom yesterday saying that she's addicted to our podcast. She loves it. Yeah. She loves it.
1: Well, while we don't usually promote addictions- um, this might be a good addiction because there are good addictions. And I would think that <laughs> Noggins and Neurons might be one of the better ones. Yeah. I would think so too. So
0: I just thought you might want
1: to know. That's that. good news. Yeah. Cause mm-hmm. we want students. We, we want do. Students. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Okay. Thanks for letting me take a little side step there.
1: Hey, they, they bounded in. So anyway, what I was saying was that, <laughs> was that <laughs> we did two hours with Dr. Tiesel and Mr. Sakley and I haven't yet launched the second hour of that. So this episode will come out after the second episode with the do- good doctor. Um, and so we're sort of discussing something that hasn't been launched, but of course, anybody who listens to it isn't going to know that it's going to come out seamless. Yeah. So what was, your, what was your general instinctual feeling about it? Why, if it was good, why was it good? If it was bad, how was it good? How was it bad? Was there anything, was there a lot of things that you learned? Just generally, not specifically. Specific points? Because I know we'll get into that. That's a tough question.
0: Well, I liked it. I enjoyed being a part of that. And I enjoyed learning about the history of the EBRSR. And I would say overall, I learned that my thinking and... My experience as a as a therapist, and my experience as a fieldwork coordinator and an instructor in an OTA program, is it was um, in alignment with what he's talking about. And I loved that he sees opportunities, and I would love it if we can help people see opportunities and help them have the courage to take those opportunities.
1: So you're talking about opportunities with regard to sort of emergent research that's coming out that shows the, the general category he had well, that I liked the word that I liked were these primer things. Is yeah. that kind of what you're talking about? Mm-hmm. Yep. And yeah. I think j- right after we hung up with them, you and I had a quick chat. And you know, sometimes, like I know in the neural class I'm involved in, there will often be this request of the students to put one proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation technique with one neurodevelopmental technique. These sort of two old school treatment options. And wouldn't it be great as he said that you would take one primer, you know, something like mirror therapy. So like a good example, maybe you do mirror therapy in the lower extremity, and then you dovetail it into gait training, which also uses the lower extremity. But that idea that you're at the same time that you're working on the actual movement, the actual functional movement, you're also priming the brain in some way with virtual reality and mirror therapy. and
0: So at some point after we dive into that a little bit more, I want to remember to talk about what you're saying and yeah. see if maybe we can think about this slightly differently, maybe reframe it a little bit and make it more more doable for people and help people think about therapy a little bit differently.
1: Okay. So so that's the preamble. Where, where do you want to start with this? So generally, this is going to be a review of the talk we had with Dr. Tiesel and Marcus safely in a way that helps us solidify it in our own mind, but maybe simplifies it for some of the people listening as well. Yeah. So where should we start?
0: Well, I had a thought just based on the history of the EBRSR and like the very beginning when Mm -hmm. he started doing the chronic pain research and how the Canadian government didn't want to fund help for people because of chronic pain and kind of talk a little bit about not being leaving people when they tell us something is wrong, and then people with disabilities making money.
1: People with disabilities making money? Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, because he mentioned um, chronic pain and secondary gain of making money from a permanent disability. Oh, really? That somehow there was the motivation of the patient to claim they had Chronic pain? Kind of seems like that's what the government was headed towards.
1: Oh, that the government was accusing their citizens, their own citizens. Yeah. Come on, yeah. Canada. Well, I well, guess we do that as well.
0: We do. We do. And <laughs> I understand that there are people everywhere who want to do something dishonest, but I can't I just cannot believe that the majority of people with a chronic disability are seeking to make money off of a chronic disability because it's a lot, it's a hard life. To be disabled, and it's a lot easier to make money when you're well. And from whatever fuels your fire,
1: I do uh, functional capacity evaluations. These are for disability mm-hmm. uh, here here in the states. You got to, I guess, in a way, you got to fail a test in order to qualify. It's not the only thing that you have to do. Um, and I got to tell you, you know, and I think I've talked about this before. The first question I always ask, and I'm telling you, clinicians, I'm telling you, anybody who's listening, students. Uh, caregivers, whoever you are, always ask the person you're dealing with: Have you had any falls in the last six months? Because it's amazing how many people fall constantly, and the government still wants them to go to work every day. I'm tragic stories where the person will work at uh, you know a grocery store, but they won't let them sit down um, as they're checking people out. So it's this struggle of trying to stand up as they're checking checking stuff out, and you know, like. So anyway, I agree with you. And and then the pain can be absolutely immense. Now, look, have I tested people that are malingerers? That's what we call them here in the United States, that they're working the system a little bit too much. Yeah. But I mean, I I would say 80, 85% of them, I would have to give them whatever they need to survive. I mean, it's these tragic things where they're going to lose their insurance if they don't work and yet they're huge risk of falls or they have this unbelievable pathology painful stuff, all kinds of stuff. So yeah, I agree with you. We need to start trusting people. It was interesting when Dr. Tiesel said that the government wasn't doing any research on pain. Mm -hmm. And when he presented the data, it was almost like the government, if they didn't hear about the pain, it would go away. And when he presented the data, it became very clear to them what was going on.
0: Yeah. And I thought that it was really cool that he was able to change policy based on that research that he did.
1: Yeah, that's that's where the rubber meets the road and it's great when you know it's so rare that mm-hmm. a researcher can change policy so yeah absolutely
0: yeah i think that's like the ultimate patient advocacy to do yeah. something like that
1: yeah that w- that was interesting because in some ways you know he's kind of s- such a direct guy and he's like let's cut the crap and let's go right to it but you know underneath that there's got to be this soft-hearted clinician or somebody who really cares about the issue. You know, my daughter sometimes asks me, why do you care about stroke survivors? I mean, you've been focused on this for 20 years, 20 years you've been at this. Why, why do you care? And you know, I hem and haw, but I think it comes down to wanting to be a passionate advocate for these people. I think T-cell shares that. I think you'd have to, otherwise you just get bored to death. Why am I looking at one pathology?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's something about it that um when you become immersed in it it just seems to fuel more passion and it is mighty interesting that's the other thing i mean yeah we care a lot we care a
1: lot you know we do do. but but also it's really interesting like if we Mm -hmm. if we cared a lot and it wasn't interesting we just try to go get money for the for whatever the issue is but yeah it it draws you in because it has to do with the brain
0: We asked people to donate to our Venmo account to help us keep this podcast up and running. One of the things that I would like people to know about us is, if they don't already know it, is that we're pretty passionate about neuroscience and our practices and sharing this valuable information with the world. And personally, I hope people are enjoying it. I think they are based on the number of downloads that we have Although I still don't understand what all of those numbers mean. And one of the things we would like to do going forward is bring people more value through our interactions with them, this podcast, and, you know, just just making it easier for people to apply research-based concepts in their practices or their recoveries. So I think people might like to know that we're working on these things from the back end. And... Whether or not people donate are able to donate, we appreciate them listening and sharing the podcast with others. What are your thoughts on that?
1: That's true, um, and we do have a Venmo account. Do you remember the address?
0: I do. It's at
1: Neurons. At Neurons. That's pretty simple. It is, and it's in our title. So, if you want to help out, look, we do put a lot of work into this, and we want to keep it going. And uh, you know, as Deb said, it's not the easiest thing in the world. Yes, we giggle a lot. and Yes, we're having a ball doing it, but uh, we could use your support. The other thing is that a certain percentage, 20%, is going to go to the...
0: The Brain Injury Association of America?
1: That's it. And they help folks who have had a brain injury, family caregivers, and they also help medical professionals who do research and treatment.
0: It sounds like a nice organization, and I'm glad that you told me about it.
1: Yep. We want to support all people that have had brain injury. And we can do it through the podcast, but we also do it through a 20% donation of what we make if you donate at neurons.
0: Yeah. And we have goals for the future of this podcast. And one thing that we'd really like to do is be able to bring our listeners a little bit more. And the only way that we're going to be able to do that is if we have some funding behind us. Mm, That's true.
1: Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Thanks. A couple of, sort you of have? umbrella things that we might discuss. And it, it, the the statement he had was stroke is the monster. Yeah, he did say that. And it's because there's 3,000 randomized controlled trials in stroke, nowhere near that much for like pretty much any other pathology that involves the brain. And TBI is way lagging behind that. Mm-hmm. Three fourths of the randomized controlled trials are in movement, in motor, right? Motor is movement. Yeah. Yeah. So the numbers are big. Um, 1,300 of the 3,000, almost half are in the upper extremity. And I actually have some hypotheses about why that's true, but let's get into that later. Okay. And the three big messages that come out of all of this stuff to him was earlier is better, intensity matters, and it should be task-specific. So you know that's some of the bow bath. And he mentioned that as the other thing that's not task-specific and why it's slower to hook into the brain or whatever. But um, whereas constraint-induced therapy is very task-specific and task-specific training that you focus on whatever the task is that you're trying to learn. And hopefully it's salient, that it's meaningful because if it's meaningful to them, it's going to be meaningful to the brain and the brain will work really hard to make it go. So earlier, intensive and task-specific. The one little quibble I would have, but way too early, and we discussed this with Dr. Jones the neuroscientists that works with rodents, that if you do too much too soon, you can make the infarct worse. So what earlier actually is, that's up for debate, but I do think maybe we didn't get intense early enough. And, uh, and so that's good. And then task specificity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess I should have asked him about early and what that means. It, my brain immediately went to early mobility and just not letting people lie in bed, you know, getting people up and moving a little bit. But he kept referring to. Canada and the UK. So I don't know enough about those two countries and how they um, did provide stroke intervention to even speak to that.
1: Yeah. The the thing I would say is I know what you're talking about. You want to get them up as much as they can moving early. But when you put the next word is intense, you don't want to do early and intense if it's before the penumbra starts coming back online. And I've discussed this a million times, you're going to know that they're subacute. That's when you want to start to push because as these neurons come back, you want to integrate them back to what they had always done. So just during the acute phase, like before they are medically stable, before the penumbras, before they're showing spontaneous recovery, I think that that's a little bit too early to get intense. It doesn't mean, as you say, that mm-hmm. they shouldn't do early mobility. Yeah, absolutely. They should move yeah. whenever whenever they're ready to.
0: Well, I, you know, something else that he mentioned was the way that they look at stroke survivors like minimally involved, moderately or or more um maximally involved. And I think people who have more severe strokes, they tend to be very sleepy. And so that is one good way to be able to tell that somebody's not quite ready for intensity because their body wants them to sleep as part of recovery. I'm not saying that that's a a tried and true, uh, definitive way to say to justify not getting intense, but I would certainly um, consider that and look at somebody's ability to participate, which will make me say something else. Right now, I've heard I've heard uh, nursing staff accuse people of not wanting to participate, and they're that's why they're sleeping pretending to sleep, but I don't always agree with that. I think if something medically is going on with somebody, we need to investigate that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And they're changing their meds I mean, there's things that make you sleep, um, yeah. and so that's that's hard to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting how already twice we've discussed situations where the system or that the overseer doesn't trust the patient. Mm-hmm. That's weird.
0: It seems to be coming more, becoming more and more a part of our system, and um, I, that's where I think that some maturity is important because I don't. I would not want somebody to accuse me of something. I mean, I think most people are honest and I don't know. Most
1: people aren't lazy. So the idea that, you know, they're like who in their right mind wouldn't want to work if they could, who in their right mind wouldn't want to get out of bed after a brain injury If they could, Mm -hmm. people don't lie about this stuff. Are these, are there that? Well, you know, there's those people on the other side of the tracks, and all they want to do is do drugs and they want to have sex and they want to sit around the widescreen TV. And it's like, what the heck are you talking about? People like (laughs) to work, people want to work. How did we get here? We've been around for 250,000 years, we worked our asses off. It's Mm -hmm. in our DNA to work. If somebody is sitting around the house, there's something wrong and maybe we can treat them for that, whatever it is. So let's trust people. Let's trust patients, Mm and listen to them more. And you've talked about this before, this whole idea where the clinician is the overlord of recovery yeah I mean, yeah that maybe that doesn't mm-hmm. work so well.
0: yeah, I'm pretty sure that uh, the people who listen to this podcast are not like that.
1: They're the good people they are they are yeah mm-hmm. And um by the way, you should join our Facebook group. Yes, um,
0: you should and I think you know we should be more active in our Facebook group.
1: <laughs> we should it's funny because I I just posted something. Hey, Deb and I are just about to record. What do you got? Anything you any rebuttals? Anything you want to talk about? Did and you get?
0: Did we get something?
1: Let's see. I'm plugging it in now. Yeah. Oh, okay. uh, oh, wait. Maybe. Maybe. Ah, uh, our friend Jen, uh Jenica Garner. Sorry, Jenica Gardner. Actually, I shouldn't say her name, except she's going to be a guest on her show. She is. Jenica Colvin. Uh, and she said something. Actually, let's see. What did she say? She said, "Sure." Here we go. You ready? real I'm time ready. why are therapists afraid to bring in evidence-based ideas when it comes to stroke mirror oh. therapy mirror therapy etc I mean yeah. who doesn't love change now first of all jenica you're oh, gonna be on gosh. our show and you're gonna tell us why that's true but here's another thing um thanks for the softball question because uh, you know if Deb's got the bat out and she's about to whack it but she goes on okay and why are therapists worried about pushing clients harder? Ooh. Deb, Deb hates Ooh. that. Deb, she wants to answer that. But, but wait, there's more. We quote, probably won't hurt them. Yep. Okay. And finally, I truly do get hung up on wanting my clients with stroke to move perfectly. Oh, she has a Mia copa in here. Interesting. Because like we're big, well, I'm a big fan of forget function, forget perfection, chip away at whatever they have and you'll get there. I am always worried that they're functional, but sometimes compensatory movement patterns will mean pain later down the road. I wonder if hmm. she means like psychological pain, or lack of function pain, or orthopedic pain. Because often know. therapists will lean on that. They'll say, "Well, we can talk about doing things wrong for a while, but you know what? What about the orthopedic stuff?" And I'm like, ah, that, that gets in the. It, it's true, but. Don't get hung up on that unless you're really causing the pain and then do get hung up. And here's the last thing she says. Uh, I usually get over it and remember just to let them move. It will get better with practice. But huh. Just adds a, but huh. So Jenna. um, what? Yeah, I know. Why are so what you want? you You get to take this. Why are therapists afraid to bring in evidence based ideas like mirror therapy?
0: Well, this is one of the topics that I wanted to talk about. I think there is a lot to this. Really, I don't think it's just. Um, I don't think it's just one thing. And I think that's why it's. That's why I think um, knowing yourself is important because. What, the more, the better. You know yourself; the easier it is to overcome some of these fears. But it's kind of frightening to look at this stuff sometimes.
1: You're talking about from the clinician's standpoint, where they're looking at the patient, and it gets a little scary. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's scary. You don't but want also to hurt people.
0: being you don't want to hurt people. You it can be scary to try new things. If it's cultural, like Dr. Teasel was saying, if if there's nobody there kind of cheering you on, you know, so if you're the only one doing this, you're the first one trying it, maybe you're, maybe it feels like people are watching you and they think that you're the one who's going to fail. But that, um, that's where I say I think we need to go within ourselves and start to look at those kinds of fears, like, why am I afraid to try this? And I do think um, that whole knowledge application piece, that is the hard part. So it's knowledge translation is kind of what Dr. Teasel was talking about. But the next step to that is looking at the knowledge and now we have this information, how are we going to apply this? And that's the part that's harder, especially if you've not done it before. It's kind of like riding a bike. First time you try to ride a bike, you probably are wobbly and maybe fell over. The more you do it, the more comfortable you get with something. And then you try different things and see if if you're doing it in a way that's actually facilitating change or you know all of that good stuff that, that's kind of what i think and then you know the the piece that i wanted to say is dr teasel said that the reasons that therapists have for not doing these things so they include not having enough time being busy and i understand all of this I do because I've been in those shoes um, all of those reasons he said that they're legit and I think that I there that whatever our reasons are whoever we are I think they're legit to a degree but I, I would I think that we need to start empowering ourselves to take some steps and try new things what are your thoughts on that
1: yeah so he doubled down on one word it's the Culture. It's the culture. Like it's
2: not part of the culture. Like it's just not part of the culture.
1: And when I first heard that, when he first said it, like he said it two times in a row. And when I first heard it, I thought, what does that mean? The culture. And then when he said it again, I kind of got it.
2: Movement therapy or mirror therapy is outside my scope of practice, right? Which is kind of like, yeah, we got some work to do, right? So you know, we've got all these these therapies out there. Most of the randomized controlled trials are positive. We've got huge numbers of them, and and you know it's an impressive database that's beginning to support all these adjunct therapies, and many of them have been shown to improve recovery, um, and yet or improve recovery versus conventional treatment, and yet we're not utilizing these treatments on anything close to a consistent basis. So, if you were to ask me, where is there an opportunity to see if we can improve our outcomes above standardized care, I'd say it's the introduction of these adjunct therapies. And so, I think that's really, I think, going to be critical to the future. You know, when we sit down with our our therapists and ask them, you know, do you use the adjunct therapies? The answer is usually not a lot. And why? Well, there's a number of reasons. Timing. But it's it's just like it's not part of the culture like it's just not part of the culture you know and 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 you ask them would you like to do it and of course we would i mean why wouldn't we right uh we <laughs> am trying something new or trying this new technology or this new treatment but i don't know where to start it's not what we've traditionally done it's not what we tend to do i'm i'm busy enough as it is and so these treatments don't get incorporated or added so you know the re- the reasons are legit and they're fine but i mean if we're looking at ways that we might be able to further improve recovery and 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 the next big step because you know one of the things that you get a feeling in stroke rehab is people just not quite sure where we're going to go next it strikes me that this is a lost opportunity that we could take advantage of
1: you're in your clinic and all of a sudden you roll out a mirror and you bisect the patient's body and you have them looking at their unaffected side or their less affected side. Now, how many sideways glances are you going to get from your colleagues? But that would be the, the flip the flip in the switch for the cultural change, because you could be the vanguard. You know, it's easy for Doro and Lynette, the fine folks over at Neurohub, because they're open-minded and there's only two of them. Yeah. So, And they're already chit-chatting about whatever the heck they're talking. They're always talking about something. So they go, well, what about this? Yeah, let's try it. Okay. So there's not a cultural thing. You work in a big hospital. I've, I've, you know, worked in hospitals where there's 40 clinicians just in rehab, you know. And so now you're, you're pulling out a mirror, and they're all looking at you like, "What?" I had this experience in skilled nursing where, you know, they wanted to get an AFO for a stroke survivor, and I was like, "Can we please wait? Let's try Easton." And of course, nobody had dug out the Easton machine, and forever, I don't think he, they didn't know where it was and where the electrodes. They didn't. Use Easton, and I got it on the guy's Tibialis anterior, and um, you know it kind of didn't work right out of the box, but that's part of it. So they they all like gathered around me, and then when it quote failed, they were off doing something else Hmm. because they go, yeah, that never works. You know, the Easton, that's why it's stuffed in the back of the closet. So yeah, that culture it comes down to the. Culture. And if you want to be a leader at work, you know, you can change culture. You're a leader. You can do it.
0: Yeah. And I will say that um, I'm pretty quiet and timid. Well, I was. I wouldn't say that anymore, but I was. Um, And interestingly, I think because of my interest in stroke rehab and the research and what the evidence says in my discussions about these things and what I wanted to do for my master's project and all of these things, my interest in mirror therapy, it, it has led people to think that I'm some kind of this, I don't know what, but I've had people say to me, well, I'm not like you. I can't do that. Well, what does that mean? You know, I'm afraid too. But when you step into your fear, just kind of lean into that and just acknowledge that you're feeling it like if, if you don't try something, you'll never know. And as long as you have the evidence behind you, it's, it's more safe. You know,
1: a lot of times at work in whether it's a rehab hospital or skilled nursing facility or wherever, um, maybe people in home care where they go out to home might have a little bit of an advantage because they could try something. But then mm-hmm. the problem always in home care is, can you drag the mirror with you? Um, but it seems to me like, you know, you have friends at work. Um, you could say, Hey, you know, I you don't have to like drag out the mirror the first day you could get, you know, it's, it's a little politicking. You're getting your friends on your side. I'm going to try this and we'll see how it goes. And that way you smooth into it rather than just mm-hmm. dragging out the mirror. And I'm, I'm picking on mirror therapy just because it's an easy one, but it could be any of these primers from action observation to imagery. You know, imagine if, if you go, yeah, I'm getting Mr. Smith to do mental practice. Where, where are you doing that? Well, he's sitting listening to the uh, audio that's um, on, you know, that we've presented here, um, and and they're doing it. We, you know, how do you bill for that? You know, well, I, I want to talk to you guys about that because I think we can. Maybe it's patient education, or maybe it's something else. You know, that is a good question, though. Mm-hmm. Where do you put action observation? Where do you put imagery? Where do you put bilateral arm training with rhythmic auditory cueing? All these priming, priming kinds of things. How do you build for them? And I think we we have to remember we have an international audience. So I don't want to get into the weeds too much, but that might be something that we try to answer in the future.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I agree. That becomes a big issue because Mm -hmm. if people are reluctant to change the culture, well, the culture is driven a lot by finances. And that's a legitimate thing. It it was, and you pointed this out, it was interesting the way Robert Tiesel gave clinicians a, a an off ramp and he said look i understand i understand all these things i get it you know i work in a hospital he's the director of research in two separate hospitals so he he's in he's in the hospital he knows what's going on so but maybe it's time to change can i add one other thing please. Okay. So remember I asked, um, you know, that what is the, the period of translation from bench to bedside mm-hmm. from research into the clinic. And I said, I had heard an estimate 20 years ago that it was 15 to 20 years. Um, again, it wouldn't happen like that in oncology or even orthopedics. Like if you find a new way to, and I don't know anything about this, but do a hip surgery that has less pain and the person is up and around usually maybe two, three year, uh, And then every orthopedic surgeon has to do it. Otherwise, why are you causing more pain? I want the, you know, posterior entrance rather than anterior. I don't know. I'm making this up. But in oncology, in in stuff like hip replacement, it's got to be pretty quick because you'll get sued. But he said, not only is 15 to 20 years a conservative estimate, he said, sometimes it's generational. Hey everybody, I wanted to talk to you about something that's really important recovery from brain injury since 2016 i've been doing consultations with stroke survivors and survivors of other forms of acquired brain injury i get together with them on zoom for about 45 minutes to an hour and we have a good long chat about how their recovery is going where they are in the process what their ambitions are for their recovery and what's holding them back often a caregiver is also in the meeting and sometimes clinicians show up anyway we end up talking about anything under the sun that's involved with their recovery and then i take a few days do the pertinent research and email them back a sort of recovery manual dedicated to their specific recovery. Often it's stuff that comes straight out of neuroscience and neuropsychology and emerging technologies. I email that manual back to their survivor and every one of the suggestions in the email has clickable links to more information. I'm going to be putting a link on the show notes but probably the best way to find out how to set it up is to email me at my personal email. And that's strongerafterstroke, three words, all stuck together, no spaces, strongerafterstroke at yahoo.com. You don't have to email me anything. In fact, all you have to do is write consultation in the subject line and I'll email you back with how to set it up. It's that simple, strongerafterstroke at yahoo.com. So let's get together and jack your recovery up. That's right.
0: kind of going back to what he was saying in the beginning of episode one when he was talking about what their how therapists couldn't get along when they first started doing this research and how they had no idea how much research had been done and so um if nope. we're sorry. looking at beliefs sorry i mean if we're looking at our own beliefs and where beliefs do do our beliefs fit in rehab if the, you know i mean like, what is our responsibility as therapists? Is it to look at the research know what it says, try to use it, or just keep going on with our own belief system?
1: Mm, kind of protecting yourself, maybe in a mm-hmm. way, an ego protection mechanism. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah. it would be one thing if these things were sort of, ah. Eh, but I think, and again, I think that T-cell, and I said this when we talked to him, that he knows more about this stuff than anybody else in the world. And he said, ah, eh, you know, there's a lot of people know about a lot of things. And then he Corrected himself, and he said, "Yeah, maybe from a twenty thousand foot view, I I do have more of, of a general view of everything. Probably more than most do. Is being very humble. Um, but if you're gonna put yourself in a position where you're protecting your beliefs, you have the biggest expert in the world saying there's these group of things that are super easy to implement that work, that they work, and that's the thing. And there's enough clinical research that you could roll out the mirror again. The mirror is a metaphor for a whole bunch." bunch of things, but you could roll out the mirror. And if anybody gives you any guff, you go, you gotta be kidding me. You haven't heard of mirror therapy. Turn, turn those tables, make them yeah. look like the food.
0: Well, that's, I think that's another thing that maybe we need to think about. I, some people work in a place where there might be some bullies. I've I've come across this some um, some beliefs or bullies. Bullies.
1: Oh yeah. Are they belief bullies? They probably bullies? they are. Yeah. Well,
0: something I've learned um, over the years of teaching and do you know looking into Carol Dweck's work on the fixed versus growth mindset. People who have more of a fixed mindset, like they limit themselves but they're, they're, they're more closed off to new things they're afraid of learning and sometimes when it's when that's how a person presents themselves we don't know maybe they've experienced some trauma somewhere along the line and and maybe they're just dealing with their own fears and they don't know it and I just think it's important to have a culture of listening and kindness be compassionate with each other and then that way you're going to advance, Your clinical outcomes. You'll advance your practice setting. But in trying to implement something new and doing new things, it's become very apparent to me that we really are um, limited by our own weaknesses.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I, I wonder if we can turn the page on that Everybody gets it, I think, and the people that listen to this podcast probably don't have a big problem, except that maybe they have to convince some clinicians, and that's what leadership is: they quietly do what needs to be done, and then everybody just sort of naturally follows.
0: Mm-hmm. I like that. Um, quietly do what needs to be done. Maybe just kind of stop asking for permission, stop seeking permission, and I mean, within reason, a, a lot of um, a lot of therapists. I know on the OT end of things, we get nervous and we want somebody to approve what we want to do. And maybe we don't need that approval, but that kind of goes back to what Dr. Teasel was talking about people knowing what to do and the whole needing special certifications or it being outside of their Scope of practice. So maybe we should talk about that a little bit. All right. Where well, where do we
1: start? I've been therapy. doing a lot
0: of talking, so I don't want to keep well, hogging everything.
1: Does does mirror therapy require certification? Yes, it does. You have to take Deb's course. <laughs> That's what I'm gonna say. But no, it doesn't. No. constraint induced therapy. No, it doesn't. Um bilateral arm training with rhythmic auditory cueing does. No, it doesn't. Oh, but that one um imagery, uh mental practice that does. no it doesn't.
0: Well, I think action observation does. Yeah,
1: that's right. You can't watch <laughs> other people walk yeah, it, that's what action observation is, right? You you watch somebody who does it well, and you get better at it because your muscles fire in the same order for the same duration, and your brain lights up in the same area. So it's more practice without putting a lot of effort into it. So yeah, come on, man. I mean, these things have been with human beings for a very, very long time, and maybe from the beginning of human beings. So yeah, we can do this stuff.
0: Yeah, we can. And I did. I it, this brings me right back to when I did my level two field work for my OT degree. My field work educator the person who supervised me was super smart. And somebody would say one thing to her and she, the next thing you know, she would have something going. She always knew how to apply something and, I, and she trusted her own mind. I
1: remember you talking about her and you said she lives. She lived a little bit in her own head. And I was like, mm-hmm. what does that mean? You meant that she just figures out in her own head and wasn't really talk about it. She just did it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. She, she made this really cool splint kind of a thing with a rubber band for a person who couldn't extend his thumb. One time she's like, oh, I got an idea. And the next thing I know, she had this thing made with some, I don't know, that foam stuff and a rubber band. And, and then the, the guy was able to do some uh, grasp and release activities.
1: Wow. It sounds like the, you know, $1,200 Flex.
0: They had Flex there, but this was not that.
1: Was not that, but it gave the patient an opposable thumb because they were Mm -hmm. able to extend it or flex it or whatever you OTs call that movement. Yeah. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. 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 So So, so.
0: yeah, she just had this, she was watching what happened and she used her, her own intelligence to create something. And that's a number of years ago. And so it seems like some of that creativity has been being taken away and people don't know that they can use their own creativity in the clinic.
1: Yeah. And sometimes when you go into a clinical trial and you're bogged down by all the wordy words that are wording around all big pages of words and all that stuff, and they don't show you any pictures and it's like, what do I do here? You know, you can get a feel for a treatment. And look in the sections of the article that that tell you how they kind of did it. And just start doing it. You may not have it perfected right off the bat, but that's okay. I'll tell you, if you start doing it, you're going to be the biggest expert in your building because nobody else is doing it. Mm-hmm. And know that then they'll turn to you. There is a fake it till you make it kind of feel to some of this stuff. And so it's okay to go through that process, I think.
0: It is. And I learned this from teaching. You know more than your patient, you know more than the person who's not. Trying it yet? Yeah.
1: yeah, you're the expert. You've mm-hmm. done it once. They've done it zero times. It's, yeah, it's a hundred percent more, I think, or is that two hundred percent? Anyway, I
0: don't know. Don't talk so. percents to me.
1: <laughs> you're an OT. You don't do math, right? Right. is that the rule? I, that's the, the draw and Lynette rule. I don't believe that for a second because I'm I don't do math either, and uh, <laughs> there's computers for that now. Okay, so um, exactly. let me ask you this: um, Does that satisfy the certification thing, or that you need special training, mm. or do you want to talk well, more about that?
0: I I think I just want to encourage people and remind listeners that the nature of their education gives them the That's right the knowledge and and it is it goes back to applying so if you're not sure find a mentor um I'm all about mentorship, and start asking the people that you work with, or if you don't have somebody that you work with, ask somebody in your professional organization for their thoughts, and you know work on it together with people.
1: Good idea. Okay, um, so I wanted to talk just a little bit about the fact that there are 3,000 randomized controlled trials, 1300 of them, almost half are in the upper extremity, and when I asked them why that was true, and I said something about rat choppers, and he wasn't familiar with the term and it was a, a, it was a ugly, um, Colloquialism that we in research in the United States use for people that do neuroscience on animals, and uh, so why more in the upper extremity? And he punted it to Marcus, and Marcus said something like, "Well, the hand is so complex, and uh, but hand function is so necessary that it's just fertile ground for research." And Marcus also pointed out it was so it's so important in any kind of ADLs.
0: Yeah, did you accept that? Answer? So I.
1: And this was the kind of thing like, again, Robert Tiesel is – is an expert in this. And I believe, like I've been on other people's podcasts and, and radio interviews I've done where they the interviewer tries to dominate the discussion. Well, they're the guests. They should be dominating the discussion. And he like guided us through what we needed to go to next. And that, that was good, but he didn't want to have a conversation because if he had, I have a bunch of good reasons that we focus on the upper extremity, but I've been thinking about it a lot uh, for a lot of years. So let's see if I can go over that. One of the things he said was with regard to the animal science, that there wasn't a direct connection between the animal science and the human uh, impl- implementation of these therapies. But do you remember that story I told you about um, Edward Taub? And he's in the Macy's in Brooklyn. So, Edward Taub's guy who developed mm-hmm. constraint induced therapy, he was doing it on animals. Yes. Um, animals, And I, I'll just uh, make it simple gave them strokes. That's not really what he did, but he gave these monkeys uh, hemiparesis of a sort. And he's at a toy table. It's Christmas. Christmas in Brooklyn. I imagine the snow is falling, and he's on one side of this toy table, and another guy's on the other side, and they're like talking about the toys. That you know, it's Brooklyn people talk. Hey, wait, what's that? So that's my Brooklyn accent, anyway. So they start talking about the toys, and and then they get to chatting, and Ed Taub is doing this monkey science and this guy is a physiatrist, David Ince. And David Ince says, well, I'm a physiatrist. I've got a ton of stroke survivors. Can I try what you're doing with monkeys in in humans? Well, okay, that was a discussion over a toy table in a Macy's in Brooklyn. Um, But those kinds of discussions do happen where there's this quick translation from animal models into humans. I thought he He kind of didn't give that enough credence. And Teresa Jones had talked about this, that there is... So what do we have here? We have animal models. Then we have bench work. That's clinical trials in humans. And then the clinician's actually doing. So it's a three-step process often. And I think that those two could get together the the before the clinician gets it, that the bench scientist gets together with the animal scientists and and see what they they know. But here's some reasons that so we focus on the upper extremity. So, first of all, in the upper extremity, you can do functional magnetic resonance imaging. So if you want to change. If you want to prove that something has changed in the brain, you can do it in the upper extremity. Often it's finger tapping tasks, risk extension, flexion. You can do some other things and it doesn't move the head because if you move the head in fMRI, you're going to blur. It's literally called blurring the data. So in the lower extremity, you can't do it because anything that you move in the lower extremity is going to shake the entire body. And you know, I think we did a couple of studies where we tried to cage the head and it's just kind of a nightmare. So that's one reason. If you want to prove neuroplastic change, you know, unless you're Teresa A. Jones where they have a little piece of pexaglass over, you know, <laughs> instead of a skull so they can look at these fluorescent neurons connecting, you need fMRI. And in the lower extremities, it's very difficult to do. Also, the biggest thing in the brain is- the hand. There's nothing bigger except the mouth. And it, if you're looking for massive amounts of change, that's a good place to start. So that's the upper extremity. Second, uh, third of all, it's very available. It's about two inches above your your ear on either side. So that makes for some of the things. And in fact, um, Dr. Tiesel talked about using direct electrical stimulation as a primer. Like I saw his primer things is in two baskets. One was like repetitive. Transcranial magnetic stimulation and direct stimulation to the brain. I mean, both of these things are not things clinicians are typically going to do. Um, whereas mirror therapy, <coughs> mirror therapy is something that they can do. So anyway, so if you're going to do direct electrical stimulation, and this was something we talked about with the Teresa A. Jones talk, where um, remember she worked with Randolph Nudo, one of the big names in, in neuroscience with regard to repetitive practice, etc., and how the brain changes, and she worked worked on those early studies where they took a little electrode and put it on the dura matter right around the area of infarct, and that primed the brain. And then it kind of got lost in translation. I was involved in the collecting data for the big clinical trial in humans um, called the North Star Neuroscience. Thing. But if you're going to do that kind of stuff, you can't get to the leg. Like the leg and the foot and the ankle for drop foot, it's between the two hemispheres. It's like way down at the basement of the brain. That's where the leg goes. So you're not going to be able to hit it with an electrode. I guess that's that's my point. So that's another reason we focus on the upper extremity. Also, I think there's this general belief, and Marcus alluded to this. If we can get finger extension, he he talked about the complexity of the hand, but generally it's finger extension. That's the tough one. If we can get that. We feel like it's a good template for getting just about anything. If you look at constraint news therapy, started in the forelimbs of monkeys, then it went to the upper extremities of humans, then it went to the lower extremities. And then, you know, in the lower extremity, we have something that works for the primary problem in the lower extremity. It's an AFO. And I was just looking this up. It looks like we have evidence that as long as 1,200 years ago, there were orthotics right around, you know, um, the Iron Age when we could start to fashion things in iron, this very strong metal, um, there were orthotics even back then. The AFO goes back at least a hundred years, but we don't have something like that for the upper extremity until we get into something like the Saboflex or whatever. So there's a bunch of good reasons that we're focused on the upper extremity. If there's a need and it's bioavailable, if you will, and it's the big thing. I think there's a, a lot of reasons um, that we focus on the upper extremity. So I just wanted to point that out.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, oftentimes, when I first start working with someone who's had a stroke, all they want to do is walk until it's time to start doing being more independent. And then they realize how helpful it would be to have return of hand, hand and arm function. Mm-hmm. For sure, life is easier with two hands, two working hands,
1: absolutely. And Marcus did point out that ambulation is as well mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons. We're coming up on an hour now. I'm thinking this may be two episodes that we okay. might be able to do back to back. How do you feel about that?
0: I think that's a good idea. Okay. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.